As a young guy, Eric Liu had a huge responsibility. He controlled what people saw on the Chinese internet. If you think it's bad, get rid of it. If it looks harmful, remove it. He was a censor for one of China's biggest social media companies. I joined Weibo in March 2011. Weibo is China's version of Twitter, but with an army of censors racing against its users to make sure online content is acceptable to the Communist Party. It's really hard to keep up with the pace of the world. It's so stressful. All sensitive words are singled out by the system and highlighted in orange or red for more sensitive ones. The sensor needs to decide in a split second whether the sensitive words have been correctly identified. The team leader would assign Eric, say, every post between 10.04 and 10.08 a.m. That would take Eric his whole shift, a full 11 hours. It makes me feel like I'm just working on a factory line. It's a physically very tiring job. I remember very few staff were over the age of 30. There were about 120 people in the team at the time. Of course, that's extremely small, even to the point of being unthinkable now. Millions of people are employed by China's censorship machine. The number of internet users has skyrocketed, and the list of words deemed sensitive is always changing, depending on what's trending online. Even words that seem innocuous, like walk or disagree. In the early 2000s, there are growing free flow of information, so politically, internet brings China a new hope. The censorship scholar, Xiao Cheng, has studied the struggle for control of the Chinese internet over the past two decades. He says the tussle between light and darkness is the kind of epic story we're used to seeing in the movies. So borrowing the terminology of Star Wars, the first episode is the new hope. But then since Xi Jinping stepped into power, and I would call the last 10 years, is the second episode, the empire strikes back. I'm Su Lin Wong. From The Economist, this is The Prince, a podcast about China's leader, Xi Jinping. Episode 5, He Who Must Not Be Named. Xi Jinping rapidly seized control of the party through his brutal anti-corruption effort and enforced party discipline through his ideological campaigns. How would he keep the rest of the country on message? Eric Liu is a rarity, a Chinese whistleblower. His account is the most vivid one we have of the inner workings of China's online censorship machine. Eric now lives in LA. We met in his garden, surrounded by palm trees and birdsong. He hadn't set out to be a censor. He applied for the job in a relatively new tech company, Weibo, not really sure what he'd be doing. 
They describe the job as Weibo editor, like some kind of back office administrative job. Then they hinted that you have to protect the company's security. So I figured it'd be deleting posts or something like a forum moderator. I didn't totally understand what censorship involved. I was naive, you could say. That changed pretty quickly. We didn't have any training before we started work. We just showed up on day one and started deleting posts. When he joined Weibo in 2011, the internet was starting to look like a threat to authoritarian control. It was a space of relatively free and open debate. Back in 2000, the American president Bill Clinton laughed off the idea China could control the flow of information online. Now, there's no question China has been trying to crack down on the internet. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> That's sort of like trying to nail Jello to the wall. China has been working on that ever since. Eric was part of a growing censorship machine. The main goal then was to prevent public protest. Take to the street, stroll, even walk. These were important, sensitive words. This was a time of widespread protest around the world, from the village of Ulkan in China to the Arab Spring in the Middle East. One of the most significant protests in China erupted in July 2011, when two high-speed trains crashed in a city called Wenzhou, killing 40 people. The party literally buried the evidence. The train carriages were put into holes and covered in earth next to the scene of the accident. People were very, very angry at the time. It made them realize for the first time how easy it was to use social media to keep an eye on the government to express their dissent. The government also realized the power of this newly emerging social media. It took Weibo three days, with 120 people to stamp it out. Nailing Jello to the wall wasn't so easy. Weibo still had a long way to go to keep up with its users, but if it failed to control the online chatter, the government could shut it down. That put a lot of pressure on the censors, and Eric didn't enjoy the work. Every day, unethical and inhumane things would happen, and I'd be forced to. Cover them up by censoring them. I felt I really couldn't take it anymore. It isn't that I was overworked. I was going to work every day, feeling angry. I'd sit down at my computer in an uncontrollable rage. That's when he made a brave decision. I started systematically collecting the census shift logs. I was sure I'd be able to go public with them someday. Every day, 
So many things disappear on the internet. These daily logs are like the negative of a photograph. Through them, we can learn what and how specific things disappeared. Eric left Weibo in 2013, but he continued to work for other tech companies in jobs that involved censorship. It was around this time that the party's disdain for the free flow of information became glaringly obvious. Senior leaders in the party circulated a memo known as Document Number、no. Nine, rejecting all notions of Western ideals like the rule of law, civil society, and quote the West's idea of journalism. The document outlined how the party could tighten its grip on journalists and online debate under the leadership of Xi Jinping. The party started muzzling China's most famous liberal newspapers. It also shut down the social media accounts of the country's most prominent and outspoken bloggers, well-known actors, writers, and lawyers who weren't afraid of criticizing the government and who each had millions of followers. Meanwhile, Eric kept collecting documents. He saw how the party's concerns evolved from what people did to what they thought. When Xu started putting his focus on the social media. Now the focus is on ideology. I asked him, "Is it because of Xi Jinping?" There's definitely a connection between him coming to power and an increase in these nationalistic narratives. They really started spreading once he had consolidated his power around 2015, 2016. Before that. We didn't really see these narratives. In 2013, you could post more comments relating to the news about Xi Jinping. Things like Xi Da Da is so handsome. I'm a fan of yours. You could find these really vivid phrases. But now, if you say such things, your account will be locked. You can't use such frivolous terms to describe the great leader. They're seen as offensive to Xi's authority and his idea of China's national rejuvenation. National rejuvenation is one of Xi Jinping's most important ideological concepts. It's basically his way of saying, "Make China great again." The party calls the internet the main battleground of the ideological struggle. It says it wants to foster a clean online environment. That's not just when people post about the great leader. It includes what they say about their personal lives. For example, ideological concepts like the socialist view on marriage and love, discussions of same-sex marriage, isn't allowed. We've also seen the suppression of LGBT people, women, and feminists. This is a distinct change. There are now so so many sensitive words relating to feminism. In its early days, the party talked a lot about equality for women. But in Xi Jinping's China, the party wants women to get married and have babies. It criticizes men it sees as too effeminate or not man enough. It wants boys to stop playing video games and start doing sit-ups. Xi Jinping talks about family values and how they are engraved on the minds of the Chinese people. The party issues lists of sensitive words, and these are some of the most valuable documents that Eric collected. They show us what the party really cares about. 
所谓的清查词列表，完全是为习近平来而设的。The most ridiculous is this list of words about Xi Jinping. Thousands of phrases about Xi Jinping you can't use online. The Chinese language has lots of words that sound the same, and people use this to find ways around the bans. So social media companies have to be vigilant. For example, Eric told me on one app you can't publish any Chinese characters that sound like Xi Jinping's name. When people want to talk about Xi Jinping online, they get creative. A story Xi told about his time as a sent-down youth in Liangjiahe became a problem for the party. 二百斤也是一个敏感词。Two hundred pounds was a sensitive term because of a Xi Jinping gaffe. He said he used to carry two hundred pounds of wheat on one shoulder and walk over three miles of mountain road without changing shoulders. A lot of people ridiculed him for it. So two hundred pounds was banned, and so was the equivalent in ounces. Then there was that other story C told about Liang Jiahe. Ah, 最后这个。About how he got manure on his face, people riffed off that. They'd call him manure face or Mr. Shithole. But these kinds of phrases are easy for censors to spot. People have to get even more subtle. A friend of Eric's at another app told him they'd had to spend an entire month removing all references to the word ta, he, or him in Chinese. Now, Chinese is advanced. 这个他字已经可以指代伟大领袖了。So now, the Chinese language has evolved to the point where the word he is enough to refer to the great leader. Eric says Xi Jinping has become like Voldemort, the Harry Potter villain nobody dares to name. He, uh, is, 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 When he is used, it's not clear who it is people are talking about. So his name has become so sensitive that you just don't know anymore. But the censorship machine isn't just about blocking politically incorrect puns; it's backed by a real threat of punishment. A student was jailed for six months after tweeting a picture comparing C to Winnie the Pooh. Because the laws are intentionally vague and enforcement is patchy, people don't know where the lines are. China doesn't have an instruction manual or law that says if you slander Xi Jinping, you'll be sentenced to 15 days in detention. All this means it's really hard to know what ordinary people actually think of Xi Jinping. He's used his control of the party apparatus to create a personality cult. His picture regularly appears on the front of newspapers, and his slogans are plastered on billboards. From reading social media. You think he was universally loved. It's important to remember that this isn't all because of censorship, though. In a generation, mass poverty has been displaced by a prosperous middle class. Many, like C, remember the terror of the Cultural Revolution and the violence of China's past. They don't see Xi Jinping's authoritarianism as oppressive. They see it as a reason the country is orderly and strong today. In fact, many analysts believe C is genuinely popular. But because people don't know where the lines are, they're careful even when praising China. I sometimes say to Chinese people, "Don't you know it's actually very frightening not to have freedom of speech?" 
非常非常的好。They say no. 是什么意思呢 ？Our GJ is very very good. What does that mean? GJ are the initials for the Chinese characters Guojia or country when you type it on a QWERTY keyboard. So, so he They're subconsciously self-censoring without knowing it. I think this is a very strange thing. I think it's ridiculous. They live in fear, but they don't see that they're living in fear. The millions of censors, propagandists, and people who work for the security state have constructed an alternate world. The party manipulates reality to maintain public consent for their rule, but it's impossible to say that consent is fully informed. This cat and mouse game between internet users and censors shows there's plenty of unhappiness. But the system Eric was a part of makes sure these complaints don't spread too widely, and that they don't become the catalyst for any kind of political organizing. It's almost impossible to imagine a grassroots movement like Black Lives Matter unfolding in China today. And there's a cost to navigating this system. I find myself having to think about this too. I didn't once send a message on WeChat about this podcast, even though it's the main way people communicate in China. It's closely monitored by people doing the job Eric used to do. Even in private online spaces, I have to assume the party is watching. More on that in a moment. If you're not an Economist subscriber, you're missing out. I work with the best China correspondents in the business. Every week, they write about all kinds of fascinating China stories, often in very difficult circumstances. To read their coverage and so much more, you'll need a subscription to the Economist. It's really easy to sign up. Visit economist.com/chinapod for our best offer. The link is in the notes for this episode. Now, on with the story. Over the past two decades, China has built one of the world's most powerful surveillance states. Half of the world's CCTV cameras are in China alone. Those cameras are hooked up to systems that track where you've been, what you've done, what you think, and who you are. The police have access to all of this, so if you post something online that they deem illegal, they can easily find lots of information about you. These systems aren't completely joined up, and there's an overwhelming amount of data. So, Seize China has to turn to another tool: artificial intelligence. I even want to add the third episode, which is. Unfolding right now. Xiao Chang, the censorship expert we heard at the start of this episode, says his Star Wars analogy needs an update to account for all of this. I wouldn't be able to use the term "Return of Jedi." I have to use the word expression "The Emperor Got AI," and that's where the surveillance state comes in. Xiao Chang runs a website called China Digital Times. It hosts some of the documents that Eric Liu collected, and is where Eric now works. Our editors can see on Chinese social media, on a daily basis or hourly basis, massive of the content being deleted and censored. The only way internet companies can keep up with the demands of the government is to rely on artificial intelligence. 
the technology behind of this censorship is not only voice recognition, image recognition, but also video recognition. But even with stronger AI filtering the sensitive posts and the huge numbers of people employed to check them, sometimes the companies can't keep up. So when they don't have enough manpower to immediately delete those contents, the first thing they ban is a search word to make sure people don't see those contents. This happened on a huge scale in 2018, when the party changed its constitution. It scrapped the two-term limit for the president and vice president, which opened the door for Xi Jinping to rule for life. If you'd looked online in China that day, you'd have only seen support for the move. But is that really true? Our algorithm and our editors tested a long list of words, more than 200 of the words, on the Chinese search engine. They are all being banned. Uh, Let's give you some examples. If you say, my emperor, no, absolutely doesn't show. If you say, long live, no. If you say, disagree that day, no, it doesn't show. So if you searched for it online, the word Tongyi, disagree, just wouldn't appear. Nor would the word imin emigrate as people searched for ways to do so. Even the letter N was blocked at one point because people were writing N equals three or N equals infinity, N being the number of presidential terms that C might serve. It's not people don't express, it's those expressions being seriously suppressed. Without this, opponents of Xi Jinping would have had a much easier time organising widespread opposition to his rule. That political agenda is not that easy to push it through in Chinese society or even within the Chinese Communist Party without violence or intimidation and surveillance behind of him. By one estimate, the party spent $6 billion just on censorship in 2020. The real number is probably higher because not all government spending is public. But from the party's point of view, it's all money well spent. Even though a lot of people wanted to follow what was happening, it really wasn't that easy to. This is a labour activist we're calling Ming. They want to hide their identity, even their gender, because of the risks of speaking to the media about this story. Ming's interview is being read by an actor. From the very beginning, the government censored public debate about this incident and very quickly imposed all kinds of internet censorship. Ming is telling me about a protest that unfolded in 2018 in the southern Chinese city of Shenzhen. A group of workers at a welding equipment factory were fired after they tried to form an unsanctioned labour union. Other workers at the factory protested. The police arrested dozens of them. News of this reached activists, in particular, Marxist groups on university campuses. Students from Marxist associations and the leftist associations all over the country rushed to Shenzhen, demanding the release of the workers. Ming wasn't one of the protesters, but they were part of a student Marxist group and no people who were there. At the time, there were dozens of students and workers on the streets of Shenzhen giving speeches, seeing the international and protesting. Ming's 
I was a reporter in Shenzhen then, and I spent quite a bit of time with the students. They told me about how they'd spent their summers working gruelling factory jobs making iPhones in southern China. On Chinese New Year, they made dumplings with cleaners on campus who lived in the dark, damp basements of their dormitories. These workers toiled under terrible conditions and had to spend the most important holiday in China separated from their families. I recorded this at the students' base, where dozens of them were staying in a small apartment. They'd cook and eat together and figure out how to support the workers. They were idealists who really did believe in Marx's teachings and thought the party did too. One of the student leaders even wrote a letter to Xi Jinping. She used his own slogans like socialism with Chinese characteristics for the new era to try to persuade him that the students' cause was worthy. The students filmed messages about the plight of the factory workers, posting them online until they were deleted. Because here's the thing, the Chinese government calls itself communist, but isn't actually okay with students, or anyone really, who want to freely discuss Marxism and socialism. Eric Liu saw that years before when he was working as a censor. If you mention the workers' movement, arbitration, workplace injuries, occupational hazard, or whatever, like those students, chances are it will be censored. In my view, the authorities consider such words to be very dangerous, especially these socialist or left-wing phrases. Only the party is allowed to mention those things, and on its own terms, because independent organising, even about causes that seem sympathetic to the party, is a threat to party control. The state would trot out something they're very good at, the same old propaganda. How we came out of poverty and such narratives. But anything beyond the official narrative isn't allowed. Over that summer, several of my Chinese journalist friends also followed this extraordinary story. They told me they desperately wanted to interview the students and workers and cover the news as it unfolded. But their editors had orders from the propaganda department that no one was allowed to report independently. They were only allowed to republish stories from China's state news agency. A couple of years earlier, Xi Jinping said the media must pledge absolute loyalty to the Communist Party. The way he put it in Chinese was that they should act as if the party was their surname. The party doesn't think it's that different to what happens in other countries. We can see that in America, some media outlets actually have a very clear partisan stance. Zhu Lingjun is a scholar at the Central Party School, the powerful institution that teaches party theory to senior officials. Xi Jinping himself oversaw the school in the years before taking power. We approached the Chinese authorities for a response to what we've said in this podcast series. After a lot of back and forth, they agreed to let us submit questions to two scholars at the Central Party School. The Chinese authorities do not answer questions about Xi as a political operator, his ambitions or his motivations. They want to keep the focus on ideology and the party line. But their comparison of Chinese and foreign media was revealing. 
Fox News, as you know, basically represents the Republican Party's perspective. CNN stance leans towards the Democrats, and there are also some other outlets that are more neutral. This is what the media landscape is like in many countries. It's notable. Zhu Lingjun gave two examples of news outlets with opposing views. In China, there are no opposing views. His words also betray China's sensitivity when foreigners talk about its state-run media. What about capitalist media? He said that often takes a party line too. Even though media outlets appear to be market-run and controlled by capital, the owners of these news organizations have their own political views. Chinese attacks on partisanship in the West don't address another big difference. Xi Jinping would never tolerate the kind of harsh criticism that Fox News routinely levels against Joe Biden or CNN at Donald Trump. Zhu Lingjun defended the party censorship machine too. The Chinese Communist Party has to guide public opinion because it is a political organization and has political and cultural functions. Why shouldn't it guide public opinion? The party line is that it's for the greater good. It's a value judgment connected to our traditional Chinese culture that spans thousands of years, and also because the Chinese Communist Party represents the fundamental interests of the greatest number of people. Party control of its message goes way beyond censorship and propaganda. Over my five years as a reporter in China, I was detained more times than I can count. Sometimes I'd go to the bathroom at a police station and file my quotes and photos to my editor from the toilet stall. But covering the student worker protest was one of the most sensitive stories I'd ever reported on. Plainclothes police filmed us. Government moles tried to infiltrate the group. The party eventually flew the students' teachers and parents to Shenzhen and forced them to pressure the students to stop their activism. A few of the student leaders were kidnapped, but they continued their campaign. And after a month, the authorities came down hard. Around 50 of the students were detained after police raided their building. I haven't heard much from any of them since. They're under constant surveillance. One guy was eventually released, but given a government job in his hometown, he was assigned a dormitory. His colleagues monitor him. His phone is surveilled. He has to wear a tracking device. He's basically living in an open-air prison. Doesn't the Chinese constitution say that first and foremost, China is a country of peasants and workers? But these words just pay lip service to the reality. This is not true in contemporary China. Ming and the student Marxists have realized the government doesn't actually care about the plight of workers. What they care about most isn't these things which we would associate with core socialist values. What they really care about is how to maintain social stability, how to maintain the stability of the Communist Party itself. 
In this context, they aren't trying to solve the problem that people raise. They solve the people who raise the problems. That's why we've been careful to hide Ming's identity. I did the interview on an encrypted call and recorded it on a separate device. The file is kept on a laptop that's never been connected to the internet. These are the most extreme measures we've taken for any of our interviews for this podcast, but we've had to be careful throughout. We've hardly been able to talk to anyone inside China safely. Even outside China, a lot of people refuse to speak once they know our podcast is about Xi Jinping. I was hired as a China correspondent for The Economist in early 2020. I was supposed to be based in Beijing, but the Chinese government sat on my visa application. So I waited in Hong Kong, hoping that eventually I'd be allowed in. It was an extraordinary time to be in Hong Kong. In 2019, millions took to the streets fighting for democracy. Then the government clamped down, turning the city into a police state. The Communist Party imposed a draconian national security law on Hong Kong, sending almost every prominent Democrat to jail or into exile. In September 2021, I got an ominous letter. The authorities wanted a list of every single story I'd ever written about Hong Kong, along with all kinds of information. It didn't feel safe to stay, so I packed one suitcase, locked my apartment door, and flew to The Economist's headquarters in London. I haven't been back since. Shortly after I left, the Hong Kong immigration authorities refused to renew my visa. Again, no explanation. Um, the Economist magazine said the immigration department has refused to renew the working visa of its China correspondent, Wang Xulin. Although other journalists tried to find out for me. Of, of his kind in recent years has raised concerns from the... Hong Kong's leader at the time, Carrie Lam, answered the question at a press conference. Uh, first of all, um, the issue of visa is uh, the autonomy and the discretion of any government. Uh, for example, standing here as the chief executive of the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region, I've been denied visa into the United States of America. And of course, we now have also the piece of law called the national security law. So in all aspects of the government activities, national security is a clearly a very important consideration. I had nowhere to live, so I called my mum back home in Australia. I told her I'd effectively been kicked out of Hong Kong. Her response? That's wonderful news. So in my 30s, I've had to move back in with my parents. I'm learning how to make one of my mum's favourite Malaysian dishes, chicken rendang. For rendang, usually it's just the meat, but since I've got carrots in the fridge, I'm just throwing in some pieces of carrots. You love to improvise. That's right. How do you feel about the fact I've basically moved back in with you and Dad? Wonderful to have your company. <laughs> your presence, actually. You're too busy. Not that much company. <laughs> well, I do have to work, Mum. Of course. I know that. You think it's weird I'm covering China from Australia? Of course. <laughs> And especially, I don't know what's the relevance of my cooking. <laughs> my parents were born in Malaysia, but our family is originally from southern China. I was born and raised in Sydney, and in many ways, had a typical Australian childhood of long, hot summers and barbecues in the park. My parents also forced me to go to Chinese school on Saturdays, which, at the time, I hated. 
They still live on the street I grew up on, so I've been taking walks in the park I used to play in as a kid, reflecting on everything that's happened. My situation isn't unique. I'm pretty sure I know more China correspondents who aren't in China than who are. And I'm very aware of how lucky I am. As a foreign national, I was able to leave easily and I was never put in jail. More than 100 journalists are currently behind bars in China because of their work. Xi Jinping has used his coercive machine to shut down NGOs, lock up activists and human rights lawyers, and repress religious groups like Christians. Perhaps Xi Jinping is proudly staring at his wall of jello now, laughing at how wrong Bill Clinton's prediction was. The system of surveillance, propaganda and censorship, combined with how Xi uses ideology to push party officials to comply with his orders, is like a ratchet. It only turns in one direction, tighter. Nowhere is this more obvious than in China's northwestern region of Xinjiang. That's next time. The Prince is produced by Claire Reed, Sam Colbert, Barclay Bram and me. Our sound designer is Wei Dong Lin, with original music by Darren Ng. Our executive producer is John Shields. We couldn't have made this without the help of some very brave people we can't name. For more of The Economist's China coverage, get the best offer on a subscription at economist.com slash chinapod.